0: I'm very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance Dr. Perry Merling, professor of international political economy at Boston University's Frederick Pardry School of Global Studies. Professor, welcome to Forward Guidance. I'm so glad uh, that you could make it. How are you doing? I'm great, um, and thanks for having me. Yes, I'm. I'm so glad uh, you're here, Professor. You are the author of uh, Money and Empire, Charles Kindleberger, and the Dollar System. There we go. Uh, we're we're matching. Professor, just to start off, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to, to write this book.
1: I was actually trying to understand um, international finance. Um, I, was, I was trying to extend the money view uh, tradition to international money. And uh, so I initially was trying to write a biography of the global dollar. um, And then I found Kindleberger, and he was a perfect kind of foil for this story. But I wanted to learn about how international money works.
0: As we start, Professor, I would say, what is the global dollar system? What are its key features?
1: Um, So the important thing to understand is that... um, international money is the dollar pretty much exclusively um, and uh, all of all other currencies are sort of tied into the dollar through a set of FX swaps and uh, an international lender of last resort we can get into that as much detail as you as you want It's a hierarchical system in that in that regard it seems that the hierarchical character of it, pleases no one okay that that the people who are not in dollar countries are are unhappy about dollar hegemony as they call it and and the US is not happy that it has responsibility for the global dollar system so it it arose i suppose it's important to appreciate that it seems to have arisen organically it, it was not it was not created uh by a treaty or anything like that um, the uh and and this hierarchical character is also or, or organic and and it grows through crisis maybe that's another thing to mention so we're period we're currently in a period of tightening um, and so you know. US monetary policy is global monetary policy for better or for worse um, and uh, that that's putting strains on the system and we're finding out uh, where it's going to break and uh, that's that's uh, the time we're living in right now after a period of a decade of incredible ease. So the, my previous book, the The New Lombard Street, treated the dollar system. It was really very domestic, you know, and uh, it was really about the Fed. And and so I realized as soon as I finished it, it ends with the global financial crisis of 2008 and, and nine. That was what, what inspired the publisher to ask me to write it. Um, and I realized, so you were asking where this book came from in the first place. One reason was I was disappointed by the the 2011 book. I realized, you know, this was a global financial crisis. This wasn't a... Uh, so... <laughs> This is the wrong frame. We need to understand international money. We need to understand the international role of money in order to understand this. And it's taken me 10 years to – or really 12, I suppose, since to, to, to get there. I'm glad it's out.
0: Me too. So I guess what you're talking about is the you know, so-called euro-dollar system of dollar balances and dollar liabilities that are offshore – Uh, And that's not talking about the, the euro currency relative to the dollar, but just the euro money, euro dollar system.
1: That, yes, that's very important. I should I should have said that. I mean, you you caught the idea that 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 the dollar system is largely an offshore system. Okay, um, the, and it's it's not just an offshore system; it's largely a private dollar system. That the 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 liabilities, the dollar liabilities that are clearing international transactions, are the liabilities of global banks. Okay, not the liabilities of of the U.S. central bank. Um, and so it's a it's a private system. It and it is an offshore system. So it's not really you know a government thing <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a business thing
0: right and just i got a question i, I always wanted to, to ask um so you know many many viewers listeners will be aware that the dollar is this you know standard currency for invoicing uh, a trade if you know, if they want to buy oil or copper you know mo- most of the time folks buy it in dollars regardless of where they are around the world and uh, they can accumulate reserves, foreign exchange reserves, mostly you know, U.S. Treasuries denominated in, in reserves. But when it comes to the dollar system, is it true that foreign banks can sort of create dollar assets and dollar liabilities in the same way that uh, U.S. domestic banks can, sort of just sort of creating money? Uh, yes, yes.
1: Uh, what I call in my class is the alchemy of banking, um, expanding the balance sheet on both sides. Yes, that's that's correct. Um, the There is a difference in the sense that the uh, foreign banks um, don't have direct access to the Fed, so it, they have to worry about, well, what if somebody wants to move that deposit to some other bank or withdraw it or something. Um, so the offshore dollar system has developed mechanisms for for that, and 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 it also has mechanisms for tying into the onshore dollar system too. Um, in in, a, in times of of, of stress. So uh, that took, that's why it took so long, you know, to develop all of these institutional structures. Um, And you don't know what institutional structures you're going to need until you start building. And then it breaks here and you say, oh, I guess, I guess that really wasn't as stable as I thought it was. And you, and you fix that thing. And then the next time it breaks somewhere else. And so that, yes, that's, that's right. That That it is in fact a banking system. So it has that feature. Um, I always say in my classes, you know, the essential, all banking is a swap of IOUs. And so you put your finger exactly on it, that yes, there is that there is that elasticity of being able to create money by expanding the balance sheet on both sides, but there's then discipline, um, because the question is whether the world wants to hold those dollar balances or in, in liquid form, okay, or if, do they wanna hold them in treasuries? Do they wanna hold them in mortgage bank securities? What do they wanna hold them in? And so you keep moving back and forth, elasticity and discipline, disciplining by the holders of money, what, what In what form would they like to hold their their dollar wealth?
0: Thanks for that, Professor. So there are many evident strengths of the euro dollar system, which I'm sure we'll get into, but let's just start with the weaknesses uh, the vulnerabilities, not weaknesses of that system uh, and, and why, why might it require a lender of last resort to sort of make sure that there there isn't a crisis
1: Well, that's just the feature of of all banking systems. It's, it has nothing particularly to do with the fact that it's global. That's true domestically um, as well. I come from a tradition of monetary thought um, where we speak of the inherent instability of credit. Um, this is from Ralph Hawtry. Once things come unglued and people, people want to, there's a flight to liquidity to, to dollars, that's when the lender of last resort can prevent the system from unraveling um, because it can create the, the the most the means of payment um and so it can satisfy that need um in a in a time of crisis that's true of all banking systems and and as i say the 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 offshore the euro dollar system is a banking system so that that the difficulty of providing lender of last resort come is really largely political okay because the the monetary system is global but political system is national okay and so whether the fed can be the international lender of last resort is kind of a, in question. You know, is, is the U.S. willing to let it do that? Okay, um, is really the problem. Um, and if not, then no one else really can do that. So it's that then you don't have an international lender of last resort. And so your the crisis will play out. Um, in fact, you could compare what happened in the global financial crisis with, with what happened in the COVID crisis of March, 2020. Many of your many of your listeners will say, "What COVID crisis?" You know, well, why? It's because the Fed quite immediately stepped in as international lender of last resort. It, re, it reopened the swap lines, um, and so nobody noticed. The wheels did not come off the financial cart. There were lots of other problems. You know, it was a pandemic, um, but the financial. Uh, uh, Shock, okay, was probably not evident except to people who were really in the financial markets. In the global financial crisis, very different. You know, it took it took years. You know, that the Fed was always asking, "Is it is it you know unusual in exigent circumstances yet? You know, can we do something? You know, and and so they intervened, sort of." W- as the wheels were falling off the cart, um, and uh, and so things got a lot worse. So they've learned the lesson, and the Fed is, in fact, operating as international lender of last resort, um, but really in cooperation with other central banks. Okay, so the that's how the politics got worked out. Really, you know, so that the Fed is not lending to foreign banks; it's lending to foreign central banks. Okay, mm-hmm. and. Uh, There, and it will not lend to foreign banks. Okay. It, it, that, and that seems okay, you know, politically that that's okay. The U S is okay with that. Foreign countries are okay with that. Um, but it is, it is able to operate as international lender of last resort in that regard. Um, this is, you know, maybe another important thing to say about this is the expansion of global credit since the global financial crisis has been largely in the global South, um, so that's an extra challenge, and it's and, and it's also the shadow banking system. It's the market-based credit system, not bank lending. So developing mechanisms to backstop that expansion of the global dollar system is is uh, has been a challenge um, as as well, and it's being tested right now. <laughs> as as a matter of fact, you may remember in the book, I say that uh, Charlie uh, Kindleberger was was very concerned about how are we going to work this out? The Fed is never going to want to be the international lender of last resort. Maybe we should have European membership on the FOMC, or maybe we should let the BIS become the global, the global lender of last resort and do its operations in the euro dollar market. You know, he was trying to think about how to solve the political problem, Okay, uh, that if we could maybe locate in international lender of last resort in this purely technical kind of central bank, the BIS, that is is not the central bank of any individual country, maybe that would depoliticize it and it would make it easier. That never came to pass. There were important swap lines run through the BIS. um, And now we seem to have solved the political problem, um, at least for the time being. So the Fed is operating in that way, did in in the COVID uh, crisis of 2020.
0: What are the necessary characteristics of a global reserve currency? I think I've Maybe already mentioned too, just about the dollar that it's in global trade is invoiced in that currency, and then other countries can hold uh, uh, that assets denominated in that currency as a as a foreign exchange reserve asset. What am I missing? In other words, if if we were to say, oh, the euro can't become the next global reserve currency because X Y Z, or it's not X Y Z, and the dollar is X Y Z. What are an example of, of those?
1: I think about this in key currency kind of language um that remember that the balance of payments of an individual country um is settled in in some international reserve okay so the it's the the question is um pe- people the uh, surplus countries, countries where people want to want to buy your goods or buy your assets, okay, have no difficulty issuing a monetary liability, okay, because people need to make payments to you. So that's the that's the key now. And I have to emphasize, it's also financial payments because we know that the US is running trade deficits, has run trade deficits for a long time. That doesn't seem to get in the way, okay? And, And it's because the world wants to accumulate our assets um, as as well, and so they're making payments to us, um, and that supports the value of that supports the value of the dollar. Um, so some of that has to do with deep and liquid markets um, that are are supported by a legal system and by and by a, a sophisticated banking system, you know, largely in New York. Europe has nothing comparable to the market for treasury bills in 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 the United States, for example. Um, there, each individual country has their own. has their own, but there is no euro bill um, like like that.
0: And it's not standard. There may be a German bill, an Italian bill. Well, exactly. It's not standard. Every
1: treasury bill has the same signatory, you know, and there's a full range of maturities of them too, you know. So you can you can move, and so that provides a kind of deep and liquid, and it's backstop by the Fed. Really? No. So the Fed is this hybrid entity that is the banker's bank. Um, and we've been talking about the sense in which it's the banker's bank, that it is providing liquidity to the banking system. But it's also the government bank um, so that it is uh, supporting the gov- government finances. Um, and, and that means that means ensuring the liquidity of the treasury market. That's part of it. You know, That's one of the reasons that it, that it, that it works as it does. Um, and that's not something that that other that really there's any competitor to um, at the at the moment. Um, but I, I would you know the way you frame that question, sometimes people think, oh, how could I be a reserve currency? What would I have to do? You know, and I guess I question that premise. To in the beginning, it's like this is this is grown up organically over time. Okay, it is not that the U.S. decided to become a reserve currency and let's put in the institutions. It more was that the that the dollar was chosen to be a reserve currency by by uh by market actors and then we had to put in all of the mechanisms to support that, you know, to support that choice by the private actors, which we did, you know, and and that's why it grows through crises because it's not planned, you know, it's it it develops over over time.
0: There have been a lot of rumblings over the past few months, about de-dollarization, that uh, you know, Russia is going to de-dollarize, uh, you know, India is going to stop paying Russia in dollars. Um, you know, maybe Brazil will hold yuan nominated assets. How seriously do you take these claims? What is your own prognosis about the, the sustainability of the dollar standard? And can you put them in the context of? Folks, including academics, uh, predicting the demise of the dollar standard, you know, for for you know sixty or seventy years, and it, ha- it hasn't happened yet.
1: It's a hierarchical system, and nobody's nobody's really happy about that. Um, and what you're hearing right now are the discontents, really in the in in the periphery, mostly the the countries that you are that you are mentioning. In the book, I tell the story about the the building of the dollar system immediately after the war. It was really all about uh, about extending the dollar system to Europe, okay, and 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 integrating the the recovering economies um, after World War II um, with the United States. Um, and there was a lot of discontents about that. You know, the exorbitant privilege word, you know, was was invented by in France. So, and professor, what is that exorbitant privilege? The complaint was that uh, the U.S. can sort of. Buy things in France without ever paying for them because it just gives you dollars, and then the French have to hold the dollars, and so they're not paying for them with real goods or 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 with gold as the French uh, wanted, um, and not not um, not appreciating that you know the french french banks are holding dollars because it's the the world reserve currency um and so that that it's useful to them okay that that they're they're not being forced to do this um it's it's useful it's useful to them particularly recovering economies and and this whole thing is repeated in the last decade um with the global south right that that the global south has been accumulating um, lots of dollar reserve balances, um, even at the same time that they've been borrowing um, in 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 dollar capital markets uh, globally. That's the same thing that was happening in Europe, you know, in 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 the fifties. Um, so, for someone who knows history, it's like ah, I've seen this game before, and I see that people who are being integrated into the global dollar system find that a jarring experience. Okay. And they don't like it. And that's, that's what you're, that's what you're hearing. It's a business thing. Okay. Not, not a government thing. Um, And in, in the way that it grows around the world, Um, it's really quite remarkable how, how rapidly the global South has, and uh, has has integrated into the global dollar system it's it's largely because i mean it, before the global financial crisis you know this was really the ability to tap global capital markets was really a sovereign ability you know it was it was governments that were that were borrowing in global in global markets and then on lending to their to their domestic uh, businesses but um that all changed after after the global financial crisis basically because of of uh of zero interest rate policy in the global north um and therefore search for yield by by northern intermediaries pension funds and, and insurance companies um, who are saying well i guess we're going to have to have to find yield somewhere um and uh and and the global south was suddenly an acceptable borrower um and so away we went um and for and for a decade or more um that's been that's been the story i i think that's that's a good thing, <laughs> in general for for the global South and for the world um, to to have that ex- expanding uh, ex- integration of these countries into the global system. Um, but it's not a painless thing, um, and it has winners and losers, and it it has, uh, and that's what we're seeing play play out.
0: Would you say that the odds of the dollar being dethroned as a global reserve currency are? in the near term, five years, 10 years, 15 years, low?
1: Um, Well, it sort of looks that way. It's, uh, remember that Nixon, (laughs) 1971, I tell this in the book, he tried to dethrone the dollar. He didn't want the dollar to be, have that responsibility. And he failed, you know, because the world wanted the dollar. Okay, and so that was the growth of the offshore dollar system. So when the world doesn't want the dollar anymore, then we won't have the dollar anymore okay but the uh it doesn't i don't see any any move any substantial move to to an alternative i don't see an alternative really that exists that uh once you understand this too understand that being the global reserve currency comes with responsibilities who wants to take that responsibility the united states didn't okay and it's been sort of Forced to do that. Um, so once you understand that, you're you're maybe a little a little less eager to raise your hand. Um, you wanted to talk about the the collapse of of sterling. I mean, everyone thought after World War One that we would return to the sterling standard. Um, certainly, the United States thought that you know it was just a matter of time. The sterling standard, which had existed before before it, World War One, World
0: War didn't. One, not World War Two. Yes, War World War One, War I, World right. War
1: One. My book, the name of it, my book is an homage to Marcello Decheco's uh, wonderful history of the sterling standard. Okay, so um, which is up until World War One, um, and then and everyone thought that that would just. You know the war was a little interruption. It turned out that it was not just a little interruption; it was really the end of the sterling system, um, and that, in retrospect, he 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 tells the story um, had been weakening. Um, some of that was also about the end of, of formal empire too. Um, that it turned out that the the trade surplus of India was 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 quite. Important in supporting the pound sterling, the world began to look for an alternative, um, and uh, the dollar seemed seemed the the eligible, um, and so there started to be to, to move in that direction. Um, 1931, the collapse of the sterling was, was really the date that that sterling when when sterling went off gold. Just basically, there wasn't a facility for central bank cooperation to support sterling. Um, there was all of this debt overhang from the reparations and all of that. So there were so many stresses on the system, and the Bank of England was just not able to support it all. Um, there were attempts. I tell this story. The, I mean, the BIS was actually created as an attempt to commercialize the reparations agreement as, as a grand bargain. Um, and uh, But it didn't get in place in time. And everything collapsed before that. And, and Montague Norman at the Bank of mm-hmm. England was really key in creating that. He knew I need some help here. You know, I can't run this whole thing by myself. And so he was trying to cre- get cooperation from other central banks. There was an attempt that didn't work. And so when that didn't work, that's when Sterling collapsed. Watch that. You know, if 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 the Fed runs gets into some difficulty. See what happens. Who are who? Is it getting help from other central banks, or or is it not? Um,
0: and what were the conditions that caused foreign holders of sterling balances to no longer want to hold them? Was it the fall in the value of those sterling's because uh, the 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 sterling would have to no the sterling no. was overvalued? Uh, no, it was that they had all
1: these sterling balances um, that they wanted to spend. They wanted they wanted to buy U.S. goods. Okay, and that meant gold outflow from the Bank of England, um, right? And so that's what undermined the whole the whole thing. They wanted to spend them. They wanted to spend them for dollar goods for for and, U.S. goods.
0: And the sterling was still on the gold standard, Professor. There are a lot of folks, and you know, certainly some people watching this who they they may think that pretty much the entire world has always been on a gold standard up until 1971 at which time you had you know, monstrous inflation and a whole series of, of bad things. To what degree is it true that the, uh, there really you know, was a, a, a gold standard that um, existed? In other words, it, it wasn't just a sterling standard, that the, the sterling was tied to gold, but every other currency was actually tied to sterling, not gold.
1: Yes, well, that would be my tradition. What you just said, okay, that there was gold standard for sterling, okay, but really, sterling was the global was the global uh, money, and similarly, Bretton Woods, you know, sort of tied the dollar to gold um but not everyone else was tied to the dollar um so the the there was never a gold standard for it was a dollar standard we shifted from a sterling standard before World War one to a dollar standard after World War II. and in the interim it was just a mess mostly mm-hmm. you know as you're as you're making that transition uh from one to the other it, it's important to emphasize this that the um you know why why is it why does it work better to have the, have the international, uh, international money, um, the liability of a central bank of a nation as opposed to a metal, yellow metal or something like that? And, and it's because the payment system is inherently uh, a credit thing. OK, and so it's not an out money is there is a form of credit, the best money, because it's elastic. It's elastic um, uh, outward and also and also inward if it's working well. So you can expand and contract both. Gold is not elastic at all. You know, it's it, it's there's just a certain quantity of it um, and you can mine more of it. You know, it takes a while. Um, once it's there, it's there forever. Really, it doesn't it doesn't uh, rust. That's why we like it. Um, but it's, it's not a good—it's not a good money. It might be a good kind of standard of value. You can you can promise to pay gold. Um, that's what that's what the dollar was until seventy one. But once the pressure came on to actually make those payments, we we went off, and the dollar system was it went, that was a shock, like nineteen thirty one was a shock. Um, in fact, Kindleberger. Did worry that Nixon's abdication, as he understood it in '71, was 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 analogous to 1931. You know, when the sterling standard uh, collapsed. And, however, Montague Norman was forced off gold. Okay, and and the dollar was not in '71. This was a decision, a political decision, and so that's why Kindleberger always called it the crime of 1971. It seemed that the U.S. was was abdicating its responsibility and that there would be very bad consequences um as in, as you know as in fact there were it wasn't global depression but it was stagflation it was inflation um you you're like you're a sort of young guy you don't remember the 70s um but I, I do know. I was in high school then and uh it was it was not it was not a good time to be alive um at all it takes time to create the to create the foreign exchange markets the forward markets the euro dollar system all this stuff these institutions have to grow and in retrospect so you know it took it took 8 9 10 years um, i guess that's actually not long in in geological time um, but uh it's uh it's it's long in the in the life of a teenager <laughs>
0: Right. Uh, if I remember from your book, I think Kindleberger likened the uh, uh, delinking of the U.S. dollar from gold to the, the Sterling's delinking in 1931, and as such, he expected deflation, not inflation. That he was quite surprised by inflation. Why was there inflation in the 1970s? And can can you sort of link it to the the sort of un- unmooring uh, of of bank credit to to gold? And then we'll get to uh, you know Volker's interest rate rate hikes, and I, I suppose I have a question, which is, in the absence of a gold standard, is there a need for a central bank to uh, impose drastic uh, uh, price stability with you know, far-reaching consequences on on nations, on economies, on on the labor force, in order to retain that that exorbitant privilege? But yeah, first, how do you explain the the inflation of the nineteen seventies? Kindleberger's explanation
1: um which was retrospective as he he as i say he thought that it, at first that this was a repeat of 31 so he feared deflation but the reason we got deflation in after 31 was because the international monetary system collapsed um and so there was competitive devaluation and so, and so forth um the international monetary system um, was in disorder, certainly in the in the 70s, um, but it didn't collapse. This is the period when the Euro dollar system arose. Okay. And so we, we got price instability, but we got price on, on the upside, not on the downside. So it was, it's really the flip side of the of the of the depression. Um and uh it 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 was monetary chaos, but and And this is maybe relevant for understanding, um, even thinking about the inflation uh, scare a little bit today, you know, that if, if this, if, if Kinderberger is right, okay, people have been analogizing today to the seventies. Okay. And I think it's not true. You know, the international monetary system seems very stable today. Okay. It is, it is not at all like the 1970s. Okay. So if he's right, then this is not, this is not, really inflation, it's a kind of post-war price shift, price level shift, okay? And uh that will, because of the disordered conditions of the pandemic and also war, you know, Ukraine war and so forth, and you know, shift shifting from, you know, service economy to a goods economy and then back again. And then, you know, so there's there there's going to be price instability caused. There's plenty of reasons for that. But that doesn't need to be, that doesn't need to become um ongoing inflation i think and i think it's it i'm i'm i would bet that it won't okay that it's not okay and uh that we're we're coming to the end of it um of this period of of adjustment of relative prices but if prices are sticky downwards the only way to adjust relative prices is for some prices to rise and the other ones to stay and so that is rising prices it and so that is inflation but that's not the ongoing inflation dynamic um, that we saw that operates through a wage-price cycle or an exchange rate. You know, devaluation and then inflation and then more devaluation. So I'm optimistic, I guess, about the longer range. But it, I think the next couple of years are going to be a little rocky because we are coming to into the discipline phase of this system. Um, we will be figuring out. What parts of those credit expansion that we did in, in, in during the zero interest rate policy were a good idea, and what parts were not a good idea? Um, and there's going to be a, a, a consolidation um, of, of of that. And we and then two or three years from now, we will we will we will be in a position. I mean, you mentioned Volcker. so seventy seventy nine. This was this was a very painful period. Um, and uh, I I graduated college class of eighty one so this was this was my time when I was you know becoming an economist really thinking about that and that was that was a pretty traumatic uh, experience um, when the dollar moves against the German against the Deutschmark and the yen you know by fifty percent you know it, it was it was uh, it was a time of great instability um, compared to present present times seemed like nothing. Um, so, uh, it, probably that shapes my, <laughs> shapes, my optimism, uh, is it just, it seems pretty, it seems like the system is pretty, is holding together, um, at the core, like the core. Okay. Um, the, there are, that's not at all to underestimate the difficulties that are in the periphery. Um, and, and the difficulties for the businesses that grew up during Zerp, you know, mm-hmm. Zerp businesses, are, are, is no longer, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer profitable. If you depended on ZERP, you're, you're not profitable anymore. Um, And I think we are not returning to ZERP. I think this is a pivot moment um, in, in the global dollar system. Um, And so there are ZERP businesses everywhere, you know, in the world. (laughs) Um, And they're all, they're all going to be uh, shrinking or going out of business and, and releasing, Releasing resources for other kinds of businesses—that's um, that's what happens in a in a recession. In, you know where so that's that's what's happening now. It will be difficult um, in particular areas where we find out. You know th- that was a zert business. I didn't realize it at the time, but in fact it was. Um, but I th- there will be. You know there were good things that happened too, and I think this. Growth, uh, this opening of global capital markets to the global south, um, is, I think, permanent. Okay, it will it will survive the contraction that's that's happening now. Um, maybe not in every country in every way, but but the general idea that we've expanded, we've integrated these economies into the global system. I think that 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 will be a keeper. Um and the and and also the market based credit system that this is the this is the natural form of banking for a global economy that bonds travel better than loans um, and uh, to put it sort of simply um, and so that also will be consolidated um, that that expansion of the the shadow banking system that broke in the global financial crisis was really just a US thing you know residential mortgage backed securities um, and uh booked uh, offshore in 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 Europe to a great extent um uh, but now now it's global so it's uh that's been a big big change in the last 10 years um globalization of shadow banking and the global, global an extension of the dollar system to the global south
0: right uh yeah, Z- ZERP, of course, is a zero interest rate policy. And I can't help but think, pr- Professor, when the US has a zero interest rate policy, it allows Europe to have a zero interest rate policy. Um, and, you know, Japan interest rates have been you know very low for, for a long time. But you know, suddenly Brazil can have interest rates at six percent. But oh, if the Federal Reserve raises to four percent in you know less than a year, suddenly, you know, India has to raise rates, Brazil has to raise rates. So it's it's always sort of follow the leader. And I'm not familiar with the, you know, the, the figures from those times of Volcker, as you say, you know, I'm pretty young, but uh, I imagine when the yen devalued against the dollar that it was because Paul Volcker raised interest rates to, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18%, and as, as such, you have money flowing in to chase uh, those high returns, uh, you know, what's called hot money, which you and, and Kindleberger write a lot about. Let's move on to to sort of sort of uh, shadow banking uh, and, and the the money view. You wrote a very uh, important piece, uh, Zoltan Pozar, as well as uh, Professor Daniel Nielsen, who's, who's been on on this show, and, and James and James Sweeney too. From yes, thank, you, thank yeah yeah, yeah. How do you define shadow banking, and when did it really emerge? Well, we we were trying
1: to. We developed a definition um, in that paper that you're referring to. Um that for us, Shadow Bank, that the, the essential analytical contribution was to say money market funding of capital market lending. Um and why is that important? Because in on both sides there, you're talking about prices that are determined in dealer markets. Um and uh, so looking at money market conditions and looking at capital market conditions um and 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 i would add now which we didn't really say in that paper um understanding that both money markets and capital markets are global markets right there's one capital market not a bunch of national ones you know there's one money market not a bunch of national ones and so that is that's why that that form of banking kind of works um that at the time the word shadow banking was coined, many people used it to mean sort of unregulated or banking I don't like or things that should be illegal. Um, and uh, there that didn't seem useful analytically and so things were being lumped together that were not like each other at all okay um, And so to try to understand this phenomenon, you have to ask yourself what 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 is an analytical? Distinction, and so that's what it was. Whereas normal, you know, when you think of a bank, um, you're you're thinking, oh, they're a deposit-taking institution that makes loans, okay? And and here we're saying no, money market funding of capital market lending. No matter which balance sheet it shows up in, so it's I, it could be on a bank, you know, and in fact, it was on the balance sheet of of of, of UBS, for example, um, during in, in the in the global financial crisis. Um, it was offshore in these sibs, these you know, Citibank sibs. Um, when you see money market funding of capital market lending, you're talking about. Shadow banking, whether it might also be spread across multiple balance sheets. That's what's happening with the global South now, really, that the funding it it it's it's all offshore. it's offshore on the margin. Um, but it's not in one institution. you know, you could have part of the term funding here and then overnight funding over there. so it's it helps analytically to trace this. That's our definition of of that. I haven't actually. I suppose in the book, because I'm following Kindleberger, and uh, the shadow banking doesn't really show up much in this book, um, but uh, it, it maybe maybe it should. Um, so if you if you if you look at New Lombard Street and and Money and Empire together, okay, I think together they they will basically New Lombard Street is about shadow banking, okay, and Money and Empire is about the global dollar system, but they are pair. You know they 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 are um, they support one another both both of those things
0: to read both of those books together. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead. Get back to the interview. Some forward guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto. A smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Right, and, and you know, coming on to the money view, it strikes me that in the shadow banking world and those specifically money market funds in 2005, 6, and 7, and 8, which owned uh, assets that were locked up with uh, toxic assets that maybe they were solvent, maybe they weren't, but uh, highly illiquid asset-backed commercial paper. And if there had to be a, a fire sale in order to liquidate, because everyone could with everyone could withdraw their liabilities at once on the liability side, on the asset side, everything can't be sold at once. And this is a, a crisis, you know, a, a problem that banks have have faced you know, um, forever. Do you think ne- that money market funds now are in a better way because they mostly own? Government paper, or you know, if they have accounts with the Federal Reserve at the reverse repo, uh, sort of is is that mostly due to regulation, or is it maybe not true?
1: Make the distinction between prime funds and 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 government only funds, um, and and I suppose an important distinction there too is the new regulation that that only government funds can promise par, so that the liabilities of those funds are are. Close substitutes for bank deposits, um, whereas prime, not so, not so much, um, and that caused a big shift of of corporate funds from into government only because they they are not interested in having a non par non par instrument. It's not it's not just money market mutual funds that are that are the funding uh, enterprises. I mean, anyone who's holding a short term. Uh, Directly or or indirectly, I mean, central banks are holding short-term dollar dollar assets. We're wondering if the if the money market funds are are in danger. Um, let me rep- you you were talking about two thousand and five and six. So yes, so what happened when the money market funds refused to roll? Basically, the asset-backed commercial paper. Um, this caused a funding crisis. Okay, for the. The for the European banks that were holding residential mortgage-backed securities. Okay, so they had to find some other way of of funding this, and the money market mutual funds had to find some other uh, asset to replace it with. Okay, and so some of that was uh, moving moving things. Um, onto the balance sheet of Citibank, for example, and so Citibank issuing commercial paper, okay, or or the European banks issuing eurodollar deposits instead of asset-backed commercial paper, or repo, or so there were I- initial attempts, and that didn't wind up working, and so ultimately the government got involved, um, and the liquidity swap lines were lending money to European central banks to lend on to these to these uh, commercial banks so that they would not liquidate their holding of mortgage-backed securities until we could sort all this out, you know, on our side of the pond. Um, And, uh, and then we did sort it all out. um, And a lot of those mortgage-backed securities, you know, wound up, uh, on the balance sheet of the Fed, or rather, they were refinanced, um, and the, it was the refinancing that liquidated the mortgage bank securities, and then the new mortgages wound up on the, li- uh, on, the on the balance sheet of the Fed. So that stabilized the mortgage market. You know, so we've we've seen a big big crisis and a lot of innovation, to, uh, you know, and pl- to try to try to hold the system together in two thousand eight and nine. I don't. I don't think we're near anything like that today. I think we understand much more how the brave new world of shadow banking works, okay, and also how its globalization um, and an extension to the to the global south how that works. I think this is probably not common knowledge in the sense that maybe maybe the number of people who understand how this works is is maybe. Ten percent of the population, or maybe less than that, but they're the people who need to know it. <laughs> it hasn't it hasn't reached the general general public, um, I think, at all, um, and it hasn't really changed the way economics is taught in in universities yet. There's always a lag like this. All of this stuff has happened in only ten years, Jack. You know, so the and and academia particularly is very slow moving. Um, it's trying it mostly is about reprodu, reproducing knowledge of the past rather than creating new knowledge. So that makes it inherently conservative and that's a good thing. I mean that's why we have libraries we keep all the knowledge from the past um, but in times of rapid change that means you fall you fall behind. Um, but the practitioners in, and central bankers have not fallen behind they're they're paying attention to how the world works and i I think they mostly understand it. so um, I'm not, I'm not worried that the wheels are going to fall off the cart anytime soon. Um, there, because again, a key currency view says as long as the center holds, okay, the system will hold, okay. And I think the center will hold, okay. The periphery is another matter, okay. There's there mm-hmm. there have been extensions of the system in directions that will that are in retrospect will will prove advised okay and so those things will will be pruned off and consolidated and it's it's not going to be pleasant um, but I think the system will hold um, and uh, I'm not I'm not worried about it you said there's this spectrum of people who hate the dollar and wish it would go away and people who love the dollar and say it will be with us you know till eternity I'm I'm kind of in neither group because I'm saying this, this is an organic system that grows and you know possibly one day there will be something that replaces it but I will tell you that moving from the sterling system to the dollar system I will remind you okay it took from 1914 to 1944 so 30 years and two world wars, wars and a great Depression so be careful what you wish for you know I do not wish for 30 years two world wars and a great depression um, this dollar system, you know, it's not perfect, but it seems to be holding together. Let's make it work. Let's make it work, and let's make it work for for everybody. You know, not just not just the core, but the periphery too. Um, that's that that would be my my direction here.
0: I want to ask you about uh, your money view, your theory of uh, finance, capitalism, liquidity, uh, as well as. Uh, the the four prices of of money which you have written about. There is par, in other words, you know, ten dollars at bank A is worth the same as a bank deposit ten dollars at, at bank B. Uh, there is interest rates. Oh, uh, you get two percent on this, you get five percent on this. Uh, there is exchange. Oh, there's ten dollars. There's uh, ten yuan, ten euros, and then there's the price level, in, aka inflation. Uh. So, what do you see as the role of, of the Federal Reserve um, I, I guess on the those, those different prices of money, and what if they come into conflict? For example, what if the only way to guarantee par and uh, is to, is to have a, a moderate amount of inflation? How do you sort of think about that, that trade-off?
1: Um, well, what you said about par isn't exactly right. You're you saying that's about one bank account being being traded for one for one with another bank account. The the idea of par is rather that bank accounts, liabilities of of the private dollar system, traded par with liabilities of the public banking system, meaning the Fed you know being, meaning reserves meaning cash okay mm. so that that's the that's the par relationship there not not between banks but between layers of the hierarchy but between between banks and central banks um, and the um uh this question of trade off i mean is is important that it, it is in what 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 the Bank of England did in nineteen thirty one okay was to abandon par <laughs> right it 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 went par with gold, okay mm-hmm. um and as a because it couldn't hold it anymore. that's at a higher level, you know that's the central bank against gold, not the banking system against against. Uh, Against the central bank, um, the United States tried to defend uh, par, um, and as a consequence, our banking system collapsed <laughs> in 1933, and we had Roosevelt. So, um, I, I think abandoning for a central bank to abandon the gold, the gold gold par um, under pressure um, is is the right thing to do. Okay, and then try to return to it. Um, we don't have gold anymore okay so this price level thing that you're talking about is is sort of is sort of like that in a certain way we have during the the stress of covid we've uh, uh, the central banks have abandoned par okay and now they're trying to return not to the pre not to the pre crisis uh, price level, but to a new stable price level. So, um, that would be like, you know, a new gold valuation. Um, but it's, it's not gold. It's, it's the whole commodity basket. Okay. That is, that is the par relationship there. Um, if you think of it that way. So, and I think that's what's happening. I think that's what's happening that we're, we were during a crisis, you open the floodgates, you keep the system going. um, and then you mop up afterwards, okay? And that's that's what we're that's what we're doing. In that sense, it's not so much a trade off. You're saying there's a trade off, you know. It's more what is the right policy for the moment, you know? And switching mm-hmm. from elasticity to discipline, you know, at at at, at, at the correct moment, um, the system tends. I return to this, you know. The system tends to fluctuate. The inherent the inherent Instability of credit, and so you want to just sort of put bounds on that, and 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 try to prevent it from uh, going off the rails too far. Um, and that that's what central bankers do, um, and be and to be a, a lender of last resort in these times of these times of crisis. Um, and we will learn some lessons as we look back about the relationship between the fiscal authority and the monetary authority as well. There was a big fiscal element to that to. In every country, but different countries did it differently, and so to to learn from that, well, which what things worked better and what things worked worse, there's going to be lots of books written about about this, and uh, we will learn from it. But we learned a lot from the global financial crisis, which is why you know we this was not so much a monetary crisis in in COVID, um, and uh, the uh, but now we, as I say, now we're mopping up.
0: You know, let's say if, if an emerging market country has a debt problem and the, the the Federal Reserve prints a lot of money and does a lot of a, a swap line that can be very effective uh, the, but it's my understanding that for price level inflation it's the Federal Reserve's ability to control is much much lower what is the sort of evidence to, you know does, does interest rates at 4% as opposed to 0 uh, how effective is that at, at uh, sort of uh, taming inflation? Of those four prices of money, the one that Jay Powell is concerned about uh, right now m- the most is the, the price level inflation. And, you know, he does it because he, he says that very publicly. Do you think that is correct? And might there be a point where, you know, to fight inflation, interest rates need to go to 7%, but they simply can't for some reason? Not, oh, the, the government will pay too much on its debt or there'll be more you know, bank issues. I don't know what. what- uh,
1: what Jay, what's in Jay Powell's head, um, I know what he says publicly, but that's not necessarily what he actually thinks. Um, the central bankers are in this communications business, you know, so um, interest rates are, are a lot higher now, okay, than people are used to, you know, for the last 10 years. And so it feels, and they've moved very rapidly. That's true too. So that's a big shock you quite correctly point out that the link between that sort of action and the price level you know is not direct okay and um in the money view we we understand the rate of interest as really being about the price of of rolling over your debt debts that are coming due, you know that. So it's the survival constraint, and and what what higher interest rates do, higher overnight interest rates do, is to really give a big incentive for people to settle, okay, instead of instead of rolling over, okay, um, yeah, under a zero interest rate policy. It costs you nothing to to roll over, and so nobody settles. And when they don't settle, that means there's no discipline, and and you never know if this business is a viable business or not a viable business. So now we're finding out, but we've only been at this a year, Jack. You know, he he. So it's going to take a while. Okay, we will we will know. You know, three years from now. Okay, whether it worked or not, um, is four percent, five percent. Is it is it enough? will i doubt that we're going to have to go to 20% you know like volcker you know because things had gotten way out of hand you know by 1979 um and i think a, a lot of Powell's – uh he, he he remembers that uh, you you look at his gray hairs and you say yeah he, he remembers that okay that we don't want to let we don't want to let it to get to the point where to put the wheels back on the cart takes that much you know that was devastating blow for for many years. You know, it, it was basically two or three years of intense, intense pain. Okay. And so I don't think that we're gonna to need to do to do that. Um and uh maybe they've done enough, maybe they haven't done enough. It does not look to me like the ZERP businesses have capitulated yet, okay. But that just may be because they have lots of cash reserves, and those cash reserves may have come from some of the pandemic features you know that that there there are large cash reserves and, are, are around so that businesses that are really unprofitable are running on fumes can still survive um, and uh I don't know so much the situation in the periphery um and uh there but as you say, all these interest rates are moving together um and there 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 will be there will be uh, washout um, in, in other, in other places. Um, And, uh, and that creates then political pressure for stopping, you know, for, uh, but the, the, the system as a whole, okay. um, It uh, it is what is what I think um, I'm, I'm watching um because if the system as a whole or if the core of the system um breaks then we have a, you know we have global financial crisis okay but i don't i don't see that so i think that most of the stresses are manageable are, are will be manageable in the, in the next in the next year or two
0: hey there sorry to interrupt announcement blockworks is hosting an event called permissionless in september it's a crypto event it's in austin texas We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code guidance10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview professor there is a phrase that I've encountered before an idea called Triffin's dilemma and it sounds very intelligent and sophisticated uh, reading your book you and a particular kindleberger had a you know, somewhat critical view of, of Triffin's dilemma and you know given that you know, I just read your book so I'm, I'm seeing it through the you know, through your eyes and, and I guess Kindleberger's eyes um, it does make sense you know a theory that Hasn't really worked out for seventy years. Maybe should be a little bit, a little bit challenged. What is the Triffin dilemma, uh, the dollar glut, and how did it differ from Kindleberger's version of the dollar shortage? And yeah, the track record of the past seventy years. So who's won that argument?
1: Um, Well, I tell this. Story in Chapter Six. So Triffin Triffin uh, was a professor at at, at Yale, um, and he wrote a book called "Gold and the Dollar Crisis" that that got the that captured the imagination of President Kennedy, um, and therefore the econo- economics profession that was advising President Kennedy. Um, I think that's sort of where it came from. Um, Triffin was basically a complete contemporary of. Of Kinderberger. Um, the uh, Although he he was a Belgian by by birth. Um, and that and I mentioned that because that may be part of his sense that he didn't like the dollar system. Um, he thought that it was that 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 he thought somehow that at Bretton Woods the IMF had been set up to be a sort of transnational. Global central bank, um, and that somehow the U.S. went back on its treaty obligations, and so he, the Triffin, So, so this is his attempt to make that argument. He says that in order for a national currency to be an international currency, the U.S. would have to run trade deficits. Okay, and uh, in order to get those dollars, so it has to pay for goods with 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 dollars, not with goods. Okay. In, if the rest of the world needs to accumulate dollars. Um, this is a dilemma because um, by running a trade deficit, the U.S. is actually becoming a weaker economy. And so eventually there's going to be a run on the dollar. Um, and so the dollar becomes weak. Um, he pointed out that uh, his his big famous uh, graph uh, in that book, okay, was showing the European accumulation of dollar balances in the United States, okay, against the U.S. holdings of gold, okay? And the European accumulation was going up and up and up, and the U.S. dollar holdings was going down and down and down, and they crossed, okay? Those two lines crossed. And so he was pointing out that there isn't enough gold in Fort Knox if there's a run on the dollar. So this is the moment in which the dollar is is now uh, we need to find an alternative. And so Kindleberger basically disagreed with Almost all of that, you know that the that the that certainly you do not need to run a trade deficit in order to supply the rest of the world with liquid balances because um, you could just do a swap of IOUs with them and in fact the the New York was right we were lending to Europe in dollars long term by buying buying uh, bonds okay and they were lending to us buying you know having deposit accounts. Um, And so you can increase the global holding of dollar deposit accounts simply by lending them money, not by selling them goods. Um, And that's what was happening, that the US, he he would always say that the US is a financial intermediary. It's the bank of the world, okay? It's expanding its balance sheet on both sides. So that it's not true that the United States, that there's some dilemma that prevents a national currency from being being a global currency. and and in fact, that's what Britain did when Sterling was so. So we. This is the lesson from 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 history. Um, it's also not true that somehow um, when this dollar line crosses the gold line, there you know, banking is not. It's not that the dollars are somehow in the place of the gold. A fractional reserve banking is the nature of the game, you know. And there, it's not a the 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 dollar. Uh, the dollar holdings of the rest of the world are increasing because the rest of the world is growing and they need more dollar reserves. And so they will be increasing every year, you know, and there's no, that's not right to think of that as a deficit. Um, That's selling liquidity services to the rest of the world. So this was Kindleberger's view. And the fundamental difference between Triffin and Kindleberger is that, and in fact, between The economics profession in Kindleberger is that the economics profession is generally thinking about economic policy as a national thing. You know, they're trying to think about advising governments about monetary policy and and, and fiscal policy and so forth. And Kindleberger is always thinking globally. Okay. He's thinking about the dollar system, not about what's best for the United States, okay, but about the dollar system. And so making the dollar system work. Was what he was trying to do in 1966. Instead of trying to kill it, the U.S. government kept being worried. You know, so they they drove a lot of this business out of New York, offshore, back to London, which London was perfectly happy to have because they they knew how to do global banking. They had done it for a long time. You know, so that the knowledge of how to do global banking was 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 there, and so the euro dollar system grew up um, because the U.S. rejected you know, having, having uh, New York as the new, as the new London. Um, But uh, so that's how the dollar system expanded, um, frankly, um, by the U.S. refusing. Uh, So the Triffin dilemma, I don't know, there's a lot of things like this that teachers, that students are really fascinated by and they, they like it. Um, And so, you know, things like the money multiplier too, you know, they, we still teach it, you know, this is, that are not actually very helpful for understanding how money money works, um, and once they're in the textbooks, it's very hard to get them out of the textbooks. So um, that's that's uh, that's a problem. Um, it's my problem. I teach I teach money banking, so the uh, it's that's that's the nature of the beast, and I can't fight that. Uh, so I would just say that the fact that uh, the fact that the majority of economists uh, adopt one way of thinking doesn't mean that they're right. Okay, it just it just uh, it may well be that the minority view is actually right. Okay, and and is worth is worth considering as a, as a possibility. Um, we don't we don't decide truth by votes. Okay, um, and uh, and so that's what was one of my one of my goals in this book. A little bit is to is to provide enough context mm-hmm. for how Kindleberger thought about the world, so that you could really appreciate what his alternative view was. I think he was not understood largely because he didn't write in in math and stat, statistics and so forth, and so it seemed like he was an old fashioned economist who really didn't understand modern economics or something. That's not really. I think that's not really right. Okay, he he had another way of doing economics that led that led him to see different things in the world, which happened in retrospect, to be prescient and correct. Um but uh, but he was a Cassandra, you know, so he 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 was not listened to really um in his in his own time. Um maybe now is his time. Maybe people will will look back and say, you know, that guy had more had more I've been giving talks like that to I, I gave one to economic historians at, at Records just last week. And they were saying, you know, I knew him and, and I never understood what he but, you know, he seems like maybe he was actually right now that I think back. I, you know, so it's so part of part of me is translating for a modern audience um, so that people can understand and then they can decide what they want to do with their teaching of Triffin Dilemma in their classes. Um And similarly, flexible exchange rates, you know, that chapter eight, chapter seven is about that, about Harry Johnson. And a lot of the economists thought, oh, we should just abandon fixed exchange rates. Um, We should let prices fluctuate just as we let price of potatoes fluctuate. Um, We should let price of currencies. And Charlie was against that because he thinks, you know, this is a... We don't want to have every United States, every state having its own currency and then fluctuating against each other. There's an advantage to having the dollar system in the United States, having it unified. Okay, His teacher at, at Columbia was part of creating the Fed. And so he saw that and he just played that same logic, works globally too, that a global trading system requires a global currency. And, uh, or fixed exchange rates are sort of like that, you know, that, that, that's sort of a global, a global currency. Um, We don't have fixed exchange rates now, but we have foreign exchange swaps and so forth that are holding these, all the currencies together. Um, Not one for one, it's not fixed, but they limit the, the, the fluctuations that proved to be the solution, at least for now, um, the institutional solution.
0: Right, and so fixed exchange rates. He was an advocate of that, advocate of, of staying on it longer than uh, the, the the world did. I never really understood how that worked. What was the mechanism of adjusting the the balance of payments? And I, I think a lot of that was uh, was agreed upon at Bretton Woods. Sort of a, a lot of people in macroeconomics and you know the academic pression uh, you know pay a lot of attention to Bretton Woods and you know sort of. Uh, Worship it to some degree in in the book, and I don't know if it was you calling it this, you, you know you you the author, or you know Kindleberg calling this or or uh, for someone else, uh, the the Bretton Woods is having a certain mythic quality. What was the mythical nature of of Bretton Woods?
1: Oh, the mythical quality was the notion that somehow Bretton Woods um, uh, created the global dollar system as an act of multi of benign multilateralism. okay. That's the myth. Okay. The truth, okay, the empirical truth is that the global dollar system grew organically and was being blessed at Bretton Woods, was being politically blessed um, multilaterally, so so that that US would be the leader and everyone else would be the followers and everyone was gonna be okay with that. Now you gotta remember that this was also. Not clear that this this exercise was happening, you know, while the war was still going on. So it was. Uh, so Kinderberger was not there. Um, couldn't have been there. He was fighting the war in, in Europe. Um, so the importance of Bretton Woods it ha- is, is this has it has this political importance, you know, that we are now going to continue to work together in peace, you know, economic cooperation um, after we win the war. Okay, that's what they are agreeing at, Brett, at Bretton Woods. Um, it then and all of that then gets reified in the textbooks, like, oh, that's when we created the, 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 the post-war system and so forth. Remember that Bretton Woods allowed there to be um, exchange rate movements for fundamental imbalance. Okay, the 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 so leave that aside. The you asked how or how do fixed exchange rates work? They work essentially through um, interbank borrowing or between countries, global borrowing, um, to absorb temporary uh, deficits and surpluses. So the global banking system is the key backstop for a stable exchange rate system in this sense, that that countries that are running deficits um, can borrow from countries that are running surpluses but it's not the sovereigns that are borrowing and lending it's their 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 banking systems you know so that it, it that it operates at a, as a business thing okay not as a as a government thing
0: implicit in that is is or is not the assumption that it's a temporary thing oh i uh yeah, so sure. more than i earn sure. so i'll get it back whereas uh yes. you know, now the, the us has had yeah, fun, a- that's
1: why i said a fundamental imbalance okay with you know if if in fact you've been running if you're running uh, fundamental imbalance then 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 the exchange rate is wrong and that can be because your different the different inflation rates in the different countries or or so forth so i'm just saying that 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 in, in the logic of clearing okay is that deficit agents you know temporarily um borrow from surplus agents and then later on they'll it'll go the other way okay and a very important thing for for Kinderberg was there are some countries who you who should be running deficits all the time you know that so developing countries that are borrowing for 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 capital development or something like that um we want to we don't want to think about that as a as a as a deficit that needs to be solved with with short term uh, bank flows because they're not going to pay it back. You know, sh- in the short run, they can't pay it. Back. It's not for that. It's for capital development. So that should be funded by access to global capital markets. So ten-year bonds, twenty-year bonds. That's what Kinderberger would be so thrilled. Okay, that the last ten years have shown have 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 meant access to global capital markets by the global South. That's what he wanted to happen um, fifty years before. Okay, it just took a long, 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 long time. Um, It was always, for him and his friends, the key institution at Bretton Woods was not the IMF. The key institution was the World Bank, okay, because it was lending for development. Um, And the BIS already existed. So the BIS, which was dealing with interbank balances, central bank balances. So the BIS... Stabilized the European currencies. Um, they weren't convertible until 1958. But the way it stabilized them was precisely by moving money from the deficits to to the surpluses on the balance sheet of the of the BIS, um, and acting as a as a, a kind of central bank for the central banks of the different European countries. So it's interesting that you should ask how how ever would a fixed exchange rate system work, <laughs> um, because your experience has has been entirely uh, in your life with with uh, flexible exchange rates.
0: The book is "A uh, Money and Empire" Charles Kinneberger and and the Dollar System. Uh, I uh, read the book; it was it was fantastic. So to you know, all the listeners reading, I you de- you definitely want to check this out. A great mix of some biographical information uh, as well as the ideas, which we've been uh, talking pri- primarily. Uh, my final question for for you, Professor, is what would you say? The, the reason that you wrote this book, uh, Kindleberger's intellectual achievements that you think are not covered within his legacy. What do you feel like about Kindleberger's legacy? Is is missing? Oh,
1: okay. is yeah. Okay, so uh, I so I have given talks all about this. You know, he is a representative of this key currency tradition of of thinking of, of international monetary system that was also John H. Williams um, um, at at and 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 others.
0: A different John H. Williams than the one who currently is chairman of the New York Fed. Yes, 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 yeah. yes.
1: He, he 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 was he was vice president at the New York Fed um, when 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 Charlie was in graduate school in 1931. So, um, and when Charlie and when Charlie went to work there too in 1937. Um, the um, so it's it's a tradition of. It is kind of the, the money view that we've been talking about, you know, which I developed for sort of the United States and dollar money markets extended to the international uh, scheme. So that's that's the main idea, OK, is that this key currency view, um, which has been a minority view um, uh, basically forever is. Um, is worth thinking about, okay, that it it gets some things right about the forces that are driving the long-term development of the global international monetary system um, and is therefore, I think, worth having in, in an economist toolbox, you know, that a, a theory that is that is prescient, you know, it sees the future as I say, Charlie saw we need to get capital markets extended to the global south. Well, it took 50 years. It's prescient. Um, and in retrospect, correct, that in fact, all of these crises, when the dollar was counted out or the attempt of Nixon to kill the dollar system, the attempts of, of others to create substitutes for it, you know, the dollar system just takes those blows and then it consolidates and it comes back. So there, it, it, in retrospect, it seems that this way of thinking about about international money has a lot going for it and should be it should be more more widely uh discussed and considered um uh and and I think it's largely un, unknown um World of Depression is his first sort of big history book, okay, and uh, mainly is Panics and Crashes. That's coming out in its eighth edition right now um, with a new co-author, uh, Bob Macaulay, who was a student of of Kindleberger's, as a matter of fact. So oh. the uh, so that's another, uh, and then his and then his great great uh, treatises, the uh, the International Money Essays and 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 the Financial History of Western Europe. So that was his that was the beginning of his third career. Writing that book, uh, and and a lot of his thinking. Once he was out of academia, he was forced to retire in 1976. He had complete freedom, and so he he took advantage of that freedom and and wrote much more easily and freely um, in his later later life. But people don't understand those things because they don't understand what what came before. And I'm hoping that my book will will provide an easy entry point. Um, it's, uh, it's not a long book.
0: Okay. It's not. It's, and it's, um, it's amazing how much you managed yeah. to pack in there for how long it it's is. It's a pretty like dense book. 60, okay. But know.
1: it's a pretty dense book, but, but it's, it's a story too. So the, you know, I always tell, uh, you know, my student, just, just read it. You know, you don't have to, you know, it, it, it has a certain narrative arc to it. You know, you can read this at different levels. You can read it, um, quickly as a biography, okay. You can read it very slowly as a critique of of modern economics, okay. Or you can read it at a middle level that it's kind of an, an alternative, an alternative view of these of what happened in the international monetary system over his lifetime, um, and uh, it's an, an alternative to what you will have learned in your classes, which puts Bretton Woods at the center, right, and doesn't mention anything about the Tripartite Agreement in 1936. You know, so the, it's a different set of Dates and so it is a revisionist history of international money, as well as as well as a biography, as well as a a an a, a loom- excavation of an alternative monetary theory. Those are all three things in that two hundred some pages. So, uh, but you can read it in any of those three ways. Um, they're they're intertwined.
0: Yes, they are. Well, uh, Professor, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and insights. It was fascinating to learn from your book and to, to learn from you uh, speaking just now. Thank you everyone for watching and uh, please check out the book. Uh, you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, thanks and uh, talk soon. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.